Well, it is a joy and privilege, a humbling opportunity to be able to fill the pulpit this morning. I know many of you are eager to have our pastor back up here, and he will be back next week. We're thankful that we can give him um, these few weeks to take a break. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it the old-fashioned way. Technology is good and bad, but uh, God's word is firm and unchanging. So this morning, uh, we're going to be working through a very rich uh, and very dramatic portion of Scripture in John 6, and it's particularly lengthy. We're going to try and and give a very sweeping overview of the entire chapter as we get to uh, the primary part of the chapter, which is in verses 60 through 71, which is where we will hopefully spend the majority of our time this morning. Uh, But I just wanted to read... Uh, John 6, verses 60 through uh, verse 71. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Join me in prayer. Dearly Father, we thank you for your word, which you have spoken inspired and provided for us in the Bible. We pray this morning that your word would work in our hearts, that our heart's ultimate prize would be the very person of Jesus Christ, that we would pursue Christ according to your word, and that we would live in faith and obedience, rooted in confidence and assurance that you preserve those who you have saved. We ask that your spirit would speak through your word and that we would have ears to hear and hearts that will understand. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's fitting as we begin this new year to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Number one, what is our ultimate prize or our ultimate goal? 
as believers? And how as believers are we instructed to pursue this prize or this goal? We're all familiar with the phrase, a means to an end. A means to an end. This phrase, I think, characterizes pretty much all facets of our life, whether it's the progression from birth to death, our daily pursuits. It's what provides perspective when it comes to talking about achievement and failure, a means to an end. As our pastor had just referenced, God created us to work toward an end. You don't have to turn uh, to Genesis 2, but in Genesis 2, verse 5, it says, Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. And further on in verse 15 of Genesis 2, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, and keep it. And so we can see from very early on that God created man to work towards an end. And in this case, Adam was put in the garden to work the garden, to cultivate the garden so that he could enjoy the blessings that were to be found grown in that garden as he experienced etern- uh, holy fellowship with God. Now, pursuits and goals surround us. They surround essentially every facet of our lives. And many of these goals are rooted in good intentions. But unfortunately, many are born in the sinfulness of man. And many are, non, many are of non-eternal value. But the basic principle here is that we will strive tirelessly and sacrificially for a worthy prize. And yet... Either our tireless efforts are for unworthy ends or worthy ends are pursued incorrectly, dishonestly, or hypocritically. And sadly, the evangelical church today is quite mixed up when it comes to this principle as well. You think about common trends today in the church, pragmatism, the prosperity gospel, social justice and the social gospel, in ecumenism. John MacArthur on pragmatism says, an overpowering surge of ardent pragmatism is sweeping through evangelicalism today. Traditional methodology, most notably preaching, is being discarded or downplayed in favor of newer means, such as drama, dance, comedy, variety, sideshow histrionics, pop psychology, and other entertainment forms. The new methods supposedly are more effective. That is, they draw a bigger crowd. And since the chief criterion for gauging the success of a church has become attendance figures, whatever pulls in the most people is accepted without further analysis as good. On the topic of social justice in the social gospel, some of you may have seen in the news this past holiday season the Claremont, Univers- the Claremont United Methodist Church in Claremont, California made national news for their church's nativity scene. You see, they displayed Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, but instead of a traditional nativity display, they chose to put each in separate fenced cages 
with the intent of highlighting, quote, the plight of refugees and asylum seekers. So in other words, rather than use the nativity scene to share the truth of Christmas and the gospel, this church chose to use the scene of Christ's birth instead to elevate a social agenda. And on the topic of ecumenism, um, a working definition of this is the principle of promoting church unity among the world's Christian and Catholic churches. In late November of this past year in Steubenville, Ohio, news was shared of how Deacon Drake McAllister, a former Pentecostal minister, was granted approval by the Vatican to be ordained to the Catholic priesthood for the Diocese of Steubenville. And Catholic news site Crux reported that, quote, McAllister, a husband and father of five, will become the first married priest to be ordained in the Steubenville Diocese. Now, folks, it doesn't get any more blatant than this, that so-called followers of God are crossing over, changing practices, changing beliefs, and willing in a seemingly unending fashion to com compromise all in the spirit of supposed church unity. And it's in this climate, in this environment, that we ask the questions again, what is our ultimate goal or prize, and how are we striving toward that prize? And with that, I want to get into John 6 here. Um, like I said, we're going to spend the mo majority of our time in verses 60 through 671. But in order for us to fully grasp what's going on at the end of the chapter, we have to understand what went on in the first part of the chapter. And so I'm going to try and give you guys a sweeping overview of John 6 on our way to our primary passage this morning. So John 6 records the final events at the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And his Galilean ministry spanned just over a year of time, and it was spent basically in two portions of time throughout the regions of Galilee, separated by a period of time that Jesus actually went to Judea and Jerusalem. And in uh, Mark's and, and Luke's parallel accounts of, of these events here in John 6, we see that John, uh, that Jesus and his disciples here are in the region of Bethsaida, which is at the northernmost area of the Sea of Galilee. And starting off in verse 1, we see that John says, after these things, and John is referring to some events that occurred just prior to Jesus' returning to Galilee, uh, he had spent some time in John 5 in Jerusalem. And uh, we will reference some things in, in John 5 here. But, but uh, it starts off basically saying that Jesus has returned from his time in Jerusalem and is now finishing up his ministry here in Galilee. And in verse 2 of John 6, it says, A large crowd followed him. And this is not unusual for Jesus's public ministry. He preached and he taught and he performed miracles. And as a result of doing this over and over again throughout his tours throughout the region, he naturally accrued a very large crowd of followers. And we'll see later in the chapter that these crowds of people were referred to as disciples. 
And the word for disciples here is the word uh, that we have uh, translated for learner or pupil. So these people were following Jesus around as his learners or as his pupils. And furthermore, in verse 2, we see that Jesus was performing uh, on those who were sick. He was, uh, they, the crowd saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And so in other words, he was performing miracles. He was healing the sick. And in verses 1 through 14, we see John's recording of a very familiar story, the feeding of the 5,000, you know, the 5,000 men. Uh, estimates would indicate that this was probably more like 20,000 people in the crowd if we included the women and children. And so we can see here that there was this massive, massive crowd that had gathered around Jesus and his 12 disciples as he was finishing up his you know, one-plus-year tour, if you will, around the regions in Galilee. And after this feeding, this miraculous feeding in verse 15, it says, Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And so we see here that in response to the miracles that this crowd saw, they wanted to forcefully take Jesus to make him their earthly king. And Jesus, knowing this, uh, I would read this verse here, uh, that Jesus supernaturally removed himself from this crowd. It says he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And in verses 16 through 21, we see recorded another familiar story of Jesus walking on the water. After he withdrew to the mountain, his disciples got in their boat, and they sailed westward from Bethsaida to Capernaum. And Jesus met them on the water. They had rowed out a few miles, and Jesus met them on the water. Yet another supernatural, miraculous work of Jesus amongst his disciples. And then it says in verse 21 that they received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And so here again, another miraculous display of Jesus' power, taking the boat and his disciples and himself from the water to land. And for the remainder of the chapter, before we get into verse 60 through 71, we see then Jesus' exchange with the Jewish crowds after they had learned that he had gone to Capernaum. They went and got in boats and sailed to Capernaum as well, and they flocked around Jesus again at Capernaum. And we see in verses 26 through 59, Jesus' exchange and his dialogue with the Jewish crowd and ultimately, what was accomplished, what we see from this, is that Jesus exposed this crowd as false disciples. And we can see several things that characterize false disciples from Jesus' exchanges with the Jewish crowd. And I want to I go through these very quickly with you guys. There are five things that we can see that characterize false disciples. Number one, false disciples are focused on earthly matters. False disciples are focused on earthly matters. We'll see that the Jewish crowd desired physical and tangible food. They were not interested in Christ's teaching. They just wanted the physical sustenance that he was able to miraculously provide. And so false disciples are focused on earthly matters. Number two, they're focused on temporal matters. And we saw in verse 15 that the crowd wanted to make Jesus their earthly king. 
They weren't interested in an eternal king. They were not interested in a spiritual king. They wanted a king that could provide for them physical sustenance and would fight and and defeat their Roman oppressors. They were not focused on eternal things. They were focused on temporal matters. Number three, they were focused on earthly popularity. Put shortly, the, the crowd followed the crowd. And the crowd was, was grown out of what was popular at the time. And what was popular at the time was Jesus and Jesus' miracles in particular. And so this crowd was focused on earthly popularity, what was trendy, what was popular at the time. Number four, the crowd of false disciples, they were not focused on sin. In fact, they didn't want to hear anything about their sin. They didn't want to hear anything about their need for saving. The crowd's desire was not to be forgiven, and they had no reason for consideration of their spiritual state. And finally, false disciples are easily swayed. And we see from this exchange that Jesus has with this Jewish crowd that, in fact, they lacked any sort of firm conviction And once they were personally offended, they deserted Jesus. And so five things that characterize false disciples that we can see here. The false disciples were focused on non-eternal and self-centered goals, ends, and prizes. And furthermore, their means for trying to achieve these goals were sinfully and selfishly driven. They merely followed Jesus to get earthly help. They refused to put forth any true consideration or reflection of his teaching, and they had no intention to repent of sin, to worship God, or to submit to him. And this is all going to be exposed in verses 26 through 59, and we'll go through this quickly. In verse 27, Jesus tells the crowd, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus here repeatedly is preaching to them and teaching them gospel truth. Don't focus on the temporal and physical, but direct your attention on what is spiritual and eternal and believe in me. Believe in me. But the Jews here we see were stuck on the physical and temporal. And though Jesus repeatedly made his claim to be God, they could not believe this. If you look in verse 41, verse 41, the crowd, they grumbled because he said he is the bread that came from heaven. In verse 42, they asked, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? The crowd just could not comprehend that Jesus was God. They kept thinking, we know Jesus' earthly parents. We know this physical man. How can he say that he's from heaven? And if if he's from heaven, then if, if he's this physical man, how is it that he can somehow provide us with spiritual life, with eternal life? And Jesus responds to them in verses 41 through 51, 44 through 51. Jesus basically here, he lays out the doctrine of sovereign election and eternal life to those who believe and have faith in him. In verse 44, for example, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
And in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Jesus plainly spoke to them. He told them these things. He said, I am not talking about your finite perishing food, but what you spiritually need in order to be saved for eternity. And furthermore, in, in verse 51, he says, The bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And this word flesh, sarx, literally means the external, frail, physical human body. Jesus was referring to his physical death that would yield salvation for the world. And the picture becomes even more graphic in verse, verses 53 through 58. Jesus says that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life. And this must have been a huge shock to the Jews because it was in stark contrast to Old Testament instruction that they should not drink blood or eat food boiled in blood. This is from Leviticus 17 and Deuteronomy 12. And yet Jesus here preaching to them what is of the new covenant, he says they must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. In Matthew Henry's commentary, he says, eating this flesh and drinking this blood means believing in Christ. We partake of Christ and his benefits by faith. We live by him as our bodies live by our food. And so Jesus was telling them it's not about the Old Testament traditions and it's not about the physical, and it's not about the temporal. It is about believing in me. So what we must recognize here is the Jews' reliance on their Old Testament law and tradition, and their focus on their physical condition rather than their spiritual condition, and their inability and their unwillingness to see Jesus as Lord. And in fact, in verse 59, we see that, in fact, this was not the first time that this series of exchanges have occurred. Jesus tells them in verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And so previously in his tour throughout Galilee, he had been telling them the exact same things in their places of worship and spiritual teaching. And so this was not the first time that they were hearing these things. And this brings us now to our text, starting in verse 60, in verse 60, we read, Therefore, many of his disciples, again, these pupils, these followers, many of these Jewish disciples, when they heard this, again, everything that Jesus had just been telling them in verses 26 through 59, when they heard this, they said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to this? And that word difficult the word there is skleros in the Greek, which means hard or harsh, offensive. And the Jews had basically hit a breaking point with Jesus, and they literally said to one another, what Jesus just said to us was harsh, that was offensive. And in verse 61, Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? In a display of Jesus' omniscience, he knew what this Jewish crowd's intentions were. He knew how they would respond to these claims of his. 
He knew what they were murmuring about in these side conversations, and he interrupted them, and he said, does this, does what I told you, does what I said, does what I claim cause you to stumble? And that word stumble in the Greek is the word skandalizo, where we get the word scandalize. And that word means to offend or to trip up, to cause to uh, trip up or to bother. It's the same word that Paul used in Romans 14, verse 21, when he was telling mature believers to abstain from food or drink that causes more immature believers to stumble. That same word. So Jesus was literally asking this crowd, does the truth that I speak to you offend you? Does it bother you? And in verse 62, he says, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And here Jesus is appealing again to the fact that these Jewish disciples failed to see Jesus as God. They saw him as a teacher and as a miracle maker, somebody that they wanted to make their earthly king, but they could not see him as Lord, and they certainly did not see them as their spiritual savior that they, that they needed. And Jesus knew this. He appeals to this. He says, what if, what if you saw me going back to heaven where I came from? Would you believe then? I've been teaching you these things over and over again. I've been showing you the miracles to validate who I am, and yet you do not believe. What would it take? Would it take you seeing me going back to heaven in order for you to believe? In verse 63, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life. And so again here, Jesus is trying to address this tension, this conflict that the Jews had in terms of being focused and fixated only on their physical and temporal issues and not on their eternal state. Jesus says, I am the source. God is the source of eternal life. It's the Spirit who gives life. And the words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and are life. In verse 64 and 65, Jesus goes on and says, But... There are some of you who do not believe. And this is a reference back to what we had just gone through earlier in the chapter in verse 44. Jesus tells the Jews, basically, some of you have not been drawn by the Father, and therefore you do not believe. Jesus openly proclaimed the truth of his gospel to these people knowing that many in the crowd would not believe. And moreover, he had ordained that many of them would not believe. And so if you were wondering if Jesus believed in sovereign election, look no further. Now, Jesus, being fully man, must have felt the pain of rejection. He had been trying to plead with this crowd that they would turn and believe in him, believe in the truth, and he must have felt the pain as a man to be rejected. And yet, being fully God, he was able to accept these realities according to the sovereign will of the Father 
and God's sovereign election of those who will be granted faith to believe. And so he said, it says here in verse 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And here we see now in verse 66, kind of the pinnacle of this exchange between Jesus and these false disciples. And this is the first point in your outline. False disciples will ultimately reject Jesus. Look in verse 66, it says, as a result of this, what's this? This is everything that we had best been going through throughout this chapter this exchange between Jesus and the crowd up to this point. It says, as a result of this, many of his disciples, these Jewish disciples, these false disciples, they withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so upon hearing the truth, the gospel truth, even from the very mouth of God himself, and with presentation of Jesus himself as the source of truth and spiritual salvation, these Jewish disciples turned away and rejected him. That word withdrew means to depart, to walk away, to turn around, to take the opposite direction. They basically just turned around and walked away. And moreover, we see that their withdrawing was permanent and final. John says they withdrew and we're not walking with him anymore. It was a permanent, final withdrawal. And so we see that when your ultimate prize is in Christ, and when you reject his means to eternal life, and when you choose to follow other means to achieve what you desire in the physical and temporal, you will ultimately reject him. And there is no other salvation for you. Going on in verse 67, after the crowds departed, Jesus then turns to his 12 disciples and he asks them the same, same question, basically. You do not want to go away, do you? And in verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And this is the second point in our outline. The prize, as Simon Peter here says, Christ himself is the true disciple's ultimate prize. It's the very person of Christ. It's not an agenda. It's not a cause. It's not a fad. It's not what's popular. It's not possessions, it's not physical well-being. It's the very person of Jesus Christ and the eternal life he offers. And notice Peter, and this is contrary to the song that we sang, but notice Peter here says, to whom? To whom shall we go? Peter was referring to a person. This was not a place, it was not a thing. It was the very person of Jesus. As true disciples, our ultimate prize and aim is Christ, 
himself, the person of Christ himself. And I know that sounds, that can sound ethereal and, and poetic, but I want to provide some concrete, practical definition to what it means for the believer to have Christ as his or her ultimate prize. I want to, I want to go through four things that practically define Christ as our ultimate prize. Number one, it means that believers know and love Christ's call. The believer knows and loves Christ's call. Number two, the believer knows and loves Christ's calling. So there's Christ's call and there's Christ's calling. Number three, the believer knows and loves Christ's character. And number four, the believer knows and loves Christ's closeness. And we're going to walk through these one by one. So what do I mean by Christ's call? That means that we as believers and true disciples of Christ, we know the voice of Christ. We know the voice of Christ with discernment. In John 10, verse 14 through 16, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. I have other sheep, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And so we see here true disciples know and can discern the voice of Christ. And for us as believers today, there is no audible voices. There are no dreams in which we're hearing the voice of Christ. But Christ has given us his word. And so it is through his word that we know the voice of Christ. Number two, Christ's calling. What do I mean by Christ's calling? That means that the believer knows and loves what Christ has planned for them. In John 17, verse 14 through 17, Jesus prays that believers would be safe from the evil one as we live as people not of this world and that we would be sanctified in the truth which is in his word. And so Jesus' plan for his believers, for his disciples, is that we would be safe from the evil one and that we would be sanctified in the truth. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, verse 21 through 23, he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul says, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And so here we see from the Apostle Paul that Christ, Christ's plan for believers, Christ's plan for Paul and Christ, Christ's plan for believers is that in our time here, in the world that we would be involved in fruitful ministry. Paul was saying to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake, for the ministry, for gospel preaching, gospel teaching, and the building of the church. Christ's plan is that we would be in fruitful ministry. And so to know Christ's calling, to know that he desires, he plans for us to be safe from the evil one, to be sanctified in the truth, and to be involved in fruitful ministry for gospel glory. 
Number three, Christ's character. Believers will know and love Christ's character. This means growing in Christ-likeness. It says in Leviticus 11:44, "Be holy, for I am holy." Jesus, uh, God is speaking to the the Jews. Be holy, for I am holy. And the same charges for every true disciple of Christ that we would be holy as He is holy. It says in Colossians 1, verse 22, through Christ's reconciliation, we are presented before God as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And even though that has been imputed to us in Christ, we are called to be working towards a life of holiness and blameless and being beyond reproach. And furthermore, not just growing in holiness, but our lives and our attitudes and our minds should be that of Christ's. Look in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So our lives are to reflect Christ. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 10, Paul, in talking about, in, in, in describing the humility of Christ, he says, having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ, the humble attitude that Christ had should be exemplified in our attitudes as well. And finally, our minds should be like Christ's. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says that as believers through God's word and the Holy Spirit, we have the mind of Christ, that our thoughts, we should be able to discern spiritual thoughts and that our thoughts should be of Christ. And then finally, Christ's closeness. The believer should love, know and love and yearn for Christ's closeness. And what I mean by this is intimacy and closeness with Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 42, verses 1 through 2 says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. Intimacy with Christ was a common theme in Paul's epistles. In 2 Corinthians 5, 8, he says that he would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And again in Philippians 1 21, Paul's desire was to be with the Lord. He says, To live is Christ and to die is gain. I would much rather depart from the world and be with my Lord. And in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11, Paul says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's intimacy with our Lord. Paul's desire was to be so intimately intertwined with God that he would know him in such profound way and fellowship with him in such a profound way. And so Christ is the ultimate prize of the true disciple. 
Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. If you have not Christ, nothing else will be of use for you. A profession of religion will only be a sort of respectable pall to throw over the corpse of your dead soul. No, a profession of religion, if you have not Christ in it, will be a swift witness against you to condemn you. What right have you to profess to be a follower of Christ unless Christ is in you the hope of glory? And to have listened to the ministry of the word of God will be of no use to you if you do not get Christ. Alas, what can our poor sermons do? Our prayers, our hymns, what are they? And what will your baptism be? And what will the Lord's Supper be unless by faith you grasp a Savior? These ordinances, though ordained by God himself, are wells without water and clouds without rain unless they get us Christ who is the sum and substance of them all. It will be of no use to you that you were regular in your private prayers, that you were good to the poor, that you were generous to the church, that you were constantly in attendance upon the outward means of grace. I say, as I said before, that all these things are but a painted pageantry for your soul to go to hell in unless you have Christ. If you have not Christ, you have not salvation, whatever else you may have. Verses 68 and 69 of our chapter here, Peter says, You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter here, in essence, is saying, we believe and we know you as God, and we will be faithful to you. And this is the next point on our outline, point number three. True disciples faithfully pursue Christ according to his word. Notice Peter says here, you have the words. You have the words. And this word, words, is specifically referring to the spoken words of Jesus Christ. The word there is rhema in the Greek, specifically used to refer to spoken words. And this is distinct from the other word uh, used uh, for divine words of God, which is logos. But in context here, what I think we can see here is Peter is saying that Jesus' spoken words are, in fact, his logos. The spoken words of Jesus are his logos. For Peter and the other disciples, their logos, or their divine word of God, was, in fact, the very spoken words, the rhema of Christ. And in other words, as true followers, as true disciples of Christ, we must filter out and disregard all other spoken words and follow the spoken words of Christ alone. Throughout Scripture, there is a heavy emphasis on the spoken word of God. The spoken word of God, which we as believers have recorded in Scripture. But, for example, in Jeremiah 13.10, Jeremiah the prophet says, This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, my spoken words of God. In John 5, verse 24, Jesus says, He who hears my words and believes. 
John 5.25, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. It's the spoken word of Christ, the spoken words of Christ that give eternal life and provide us with the instruction and the means to live faithfully to him. And that's why we are so ardent and committed to the word of God. It's the word of God, the very words of God that inform us on how we can live faithfully Dr. Steve Lawson said, attending a church that does not preach the word is like going to a restaurant that does not serve food. As a church, God's word should be central to all that we do. Moreover, it should be reverently handled, correctly interpreted, consistently taught, and carefully applied. And then finally, in verses 70 through 71, it says, Jesus answered them. Jesus answers Peter and, disciple, and the disciples, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so in response to Peter's profession of faith, and commitment to Christ, Jesus responds and says, Yes, I, I have called you, and I will preserve you. We see a greater expansion of this, the mind of Christ, the preservation of Christ in, in his prayer in John 17, verses 22 through 24. And this is speaking of the duality of God's sovereign call and man's responsibility to obey and follow. It is all God's work to save and sanctify and eventually glorify those he has called, and yet we have been commanded, in Philippians 2, verse 12, we have been commanded to work out our faith with fear and trembling. Jesus says here to his disciples, these 12 men that he has called, that it is he who chose them. And that is he that will preserve them. We know that Jesus did not mistakenly call Judas. Quite the opposite. Judas was called to fulfill scriptural prophecy. Judas was called to serve as a dramatic example of one who goes through the motions of being a close follower of Christ. Even getting to be in the physical and continuous presence of Jesus himself. Yet come away only to betray and reject him. It's an incredibly sobering example to us. But... An even further example of how Jesus calls and preserves those that he has called. And so the last point in our outline here, God preserves those he has called. Unlike any other worldview or religion, Christians pursue Christ according to his word and with the security and peace that he has called, saved, and will keep us as his own. And this security and assurance should encourage and motivate us all the more to pursue him with greater zeal. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. 2 Thessalonians 
I think really sums up very well and parallels very well what we have just been going through here in John 6. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, God has chosen you. Again, the called. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Christ is the ultimate prize. Paul goes on to say, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions. Be faithful, in other words. Hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. This referring to the very word of God. But the key thing here is that God has, from the beginning, chosen those and will preserve those that he has saved. Now, I, I think that a, a simple illustration to help us maybe understand a little bit better about the saving and preserving work of God and the personal responsibility that we have as believers to pursue him in obedience, the best illustration and it's oversimplified. The best illustration I can give you is the example of a father helping his toddler child cross monkey bars. And for all of the parents in the room, you'll understand this. Um, and that child is following their, their father's instructions on when to reach out and to hold on to the rings. And all the more the father is holding them up, right? And when they get to the end of those monkey bars... Not once have I heard a child say, my dad did that for me, right? Every child says, look what, look what I did, right? It's every bit the work of that child, but it is every bit the work of that father to enable that child to cross the monkey bars. It's the same thing for us as true disciples that God saves and God preserves but those that he has saved and called and preserved must also obey and follow faithfully. And so we see here in closing, Christ is the believer's ultimate goal. And we have his spoken, revealed, written word to guide and instruct us in our pursuit of him. All with the confidence of God's preservation of those he has called and saved. I'm encouraged by the words from modern hymn writers Matt Papa and Matt Boswell in their hymn, Christ is All. They write, and in the trial, when storms are raging, though tears may fall, my soul will rise, for there's a peace that is mine unchanging, there is a joy that never dies. When life is passing and strength is fading, I'll see the one that I adore. Let this world vanish, oh give me Jesus, my great desire, my true reward. Christ is all, and my song will ever be, Christ is all. Now perhaps some of you here today or listening in Maybe you are not a true believer and not, not a true disciple, not a true follower of Christ. 
listen to the words of J.C. Ryle. I know not what others may think, but to me it does not seem clear that heaven would be a miserable, it, it, sorry, but to me it does seem clear that heaven would be a miserable place to an unholy man. It cannot be otherwise. People may say in a vague way they hope to go to heaven, but they do not consider what they say. We must be heavenly minded and have heavenly tastes in the life that now is, or else we shall never find ourselves in heaven in the life to come. If you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, he, if he is not your ultimate prize in this life, if you do not cherish his word that provides direction and confidence and assurance of his sovereign preservation and our eternal fellowship with him, then there is no hope for heaven for you. Christ asks the same question to you today. You do not want to go away also, do you? Jesus invites you to believe in him to repent of your sin, to trust in his death and resurrection, which has paid the required price for sin and conquered the consequence for sin, and to follow him in obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this time to delve deep into your word. It is so rich and timeless as true disciples of Christ, true Christians, let us fix our eyes on Christ as our ultimate prize, pressing on to know and to be like Christ according to his example and instructions given to us in his word. All with full confidence and assurance in Christ of our sovereign call, our salvation, our redemption, our sanctification, and our ultimate glorification when we are united with you for eternity. Amen.